thank you, Father, for your son. Thank you for Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, that you didn't leave us as orphans, but that you sent us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, so that we wouldn't be left alone. And he comforts us and he exhorts us and he convicts us of sin and of righteousness and judgment and he draws us into your will. And so we pray as we open your word tonight, as we break open Ecclesiastes, we just pray, Jesus, we might be able to see you in between the pages. We might be able to feel and experience uh, the weight of the gospel. And uh, Lord, we might be able to put your word to practice and that it might bear fruit unto eternal life. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. Welcome out on a beautiful Wednesday evening. And tonight, we are going to be turning uh, once again to the book of Ecclesiastes. And this evening we're going to be in chapter th uh, 3, we're going to pick up in verse 16. And in the previous weeks as we've worked our way through this book of Ecclesiastes, what we've seen is week in and week out that all these different categories or all these different uh, pursuits that mankind has are all meaningless. We've looked at pleasure, we've looked at money, we've even looked at wisdom, and all of them have come back with this same common thread, that they're all meaningless, or as this book calls them, they're all hevel. So tonight, and we've entitled the message, Disorder in the Court, we're going to look at the very light topic of justice and politics, right? Nothing like coming out on a Wednesday night for a little light reading as we look at justice and politics and just how they're meaningless. And before we dig into this section, I want to uh, look at the fact that over the years and through these last generations, the one that at least I'm the most familiar with, from the baby boomers to Generation X to millennials, that each of these generations have seen different changes, but also each of these have had a different core group of values. And those values from the workplace, for example, uh, boomers, they, they love to work, and in their work is really where they would find their value, right? They would work, do anything it took in order to, to stay uh, valuable to their employer. Whereas Generation X, my generation, uh, more of a work-life balance. We would still put in the overtime, but we wanted to make sure that we still had a little bit of family time. And then millennials are more uh, uh, work-to-live instead of the live-to-work mentality that their great-grandparents would have had. So you see uh, this progress. I'm not saying that any of them are right or wrong, but we see this change. But with each of these, they also had their different uh, social things, the things that were really uh, on the forefront of their mind. In the bottom left, you see a, a picture from uh, 1963, a march on Washington. And in that picture, you see this cry for social change, this uh, demand for better housing, better employment. And then to the right, in the middle of the screen, you see a march on Washington from 2018. If I did the math right, I think that's 55 years, but maybe I did the math wrong. Again, I'm from Illinois, like I said Sunday. Math isn't my strong suit. But in that uh, picture there, you'd see the, the uh, poster being held up, Stimonist Feminist Voter. I'll be honest, I had to look up and see what a Stimonist even was. I thought it had something to do with stem cell research. Not at all. A Stimonist is a science, technology, uh, engineering, and math female who is all for the Stimonist. So go Stimonists, right? Either way, no matter which spot you fall in uh, with these causes, 
all these groups, what they have in common is they all turned to the politics and the justice system for, to be the change agent, to really be what brings about change in our culture. And all of them would have these two questions really in common. When will justice rise? When will we finally see justice? And who will make it right? Maybe Judge Dredd there on the right-hand side of the screen. Maybe he'll come in and lay down the law and make everything right. So with that in mind, let's turn to the third chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're actually going to pick up tonight uh, in verse 15. We'll be halfway through that verse as we start, and we'll cover these first couple verses this evening. So beginning at the end of verse 15 in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, and God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun... In the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every purpose and for every work. Now to begin with, you could retranslate the end of that 15th verse to say, God seeks the persecuted. What he's saying there is God is going to seek out those who are persecuted, and eventually, in God's timing, he's going to bring everything back into right order. He's going to judge the good, the bad, the right, the wrong, the happy, the sad. He's going to bring everything back into subjection and judge it all. The problem we have, and the question we have, is how long is this going to take? I mean, we're the people that have invented the cell phone, the microwave, you know, our cars go faster. We want this thing done quickly. Lord, what is the holdup, right? How long are these things going to take? And in Isaiah, if we turn uh, to the right just a little bit, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 23, what we'd see there is as uh, Isaiah is pinning all these woes that are coming upon man because of uh, this impending judgment, because of the sin that is in the nation of Israel, he's, he's going through this list of woes, but there in verse 23 of chapter 5, what he says is, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from a righteous man. So even back 3,000 years ago, we see this idea that the wicked take a bribe and take away justice from the righteous. And this is something that we get our fists all balled up and we get very indignant about because we want... Oh boy, I'm changing slides. Look out. Because we want uh, the... the uh, the ones that are creating this injustice to finally be brought to justice, right? And the idea being is that the rich always figure out a way to get out of things, right? The rich always can hire the best attorneys. Now, in my lifetime, the biggest, most high-profile court case was the O.J. Simpson trial. So in high school, I remember the, the car chase. I remember it all the way through the trial. And in my senior year, we got to actually watch the verdict on television in the classroom. And we know what the verdict was, but do you remember what this group of lawyers uh, were called that, were, that was his team? Anybody remember that? Dream the Dream Team, that's right. Robert Shapiro, Johnny Cochran, uh, Robert Kardashian. There were some of the, the Dream Team of attorneys, right? The absolute best attorneys money could buy. And it took care of things, right? So no matter which side you fall in on that, the idea being is the rich can always get the absolute best representation for themselves. And what we, uh, what we hear our kids cry out is, it's not fair, it's not fair. And what do we answer our kids? Life isn't fair. You know what's not fair? Life. How do you like that? And this cry can even be found scripturally, all the way back to the right-hand side of your Bible in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, 
is we see the seals being broke open. And in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 6, we see this cry of the martyrs. And when he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word and for the testimony which they held, the innocent. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So this cry even comes from heaven. How long is this going to take before you finally judge the earth? Now in Matthew 24, verse 36, what Jesus tells us is he's talking about this time period, this end of days time, this judgment that's going to come upon the earth. In Matthew 24, 36, he says, But of that day, speaking of the day of judgment, an hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So the idea being that at some point God is going to bring everything right. He's going to cleanse this entire earth. But that time period, we don't know when that's going to be. And that's the hard part for us, this anticipation. For Noah, some hundred years that he was building this ark, can you imagine? For a hundred years, people are asking him what in the world he's doing. All this time taking place. But in the end, what happened is God said it all right. He hit the reboot key, and we could see it. No one had any clue what happened. Can you imagine being there at that time, and that first raindrop hits you on the head after you've been making fun of the crazy guy building the boat for 100 years? Right? That, that would be a little bit shocking. Like, listen, what's this nut doing? Oh, hang on, I'm getting drops. What is this thing? So that's the point where they actually realized things were all going to go badly for them. And in Psalm 73, as we continue our Bible drills... To start off, in Psalm 73, I think this is the way that we feel quite often. This is a psalm of Asaph. At least for me, anyway, I can, I can relate to this psalm. And actually, let's start in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." We see the prosperity of these evil, wicked people around us, and we think, man, one of these days they're going to get theirs, won't they? They just continue to prosper over and over again, and it can really throw us off in our faith because we begin to wonder and question. At some point, Lord, you're going to have to make this thing right. And then in verse 16, what he says is, when I thought of how to understand this, it was too painful. It was too much for me to take. Until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. So just like on that day where the raindrops fell, it all ended in an instant. And they were utterly, uh, as it said here, I lost my place. And they were utterly consumed with terrors. It's not a great spot to be. But that's the, the point of this is everything's going to be brought back into right order. And I put up there on the screen something you've heard probably if you've been here any length of time is that grace is getting what we don't deserve and mercy is not getting what we do deserve. 
So all this being said, this judgment that we want to see, everything being brought back into right order, what we have to keep in mind, the verses we just read, is not only are the wicked going to be judged, but everybody's going to be judged, right? So that's the key for us, is it's not just judgment for one, it means judgment for all. And that calls me to question, where do I stand? Where do I stack up? Because what we would like is justice for others, but mercy for us, right? And I would, uh, I would caution you probably not to ever use a George Carlin quote in any kind of message, but in this I'm going to make an, example, or an exception for myself. Have you ever noticed that anyone driving slower than you is an idiot, but anyone driving faster than you is a maniac? With that, let's pick up in verse 18 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, verse 18, And I said in my heart concerning the conditions of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they are themselves like animals. For what happens to the son of, sons of men also happens to the animals. One thing befalls them, as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity." All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of man, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes downward to the earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For, what, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? So everything is going to be brought into judgment all at the same time. Both the people and the animals will eventually have the all the same end, right? We all die. That's, that's the point. We've, we've seen this over and over again. Everybody that's doing these things, we all have something in common. We're all going to die. So in Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30, what we read there is that everything has been given breath by the Almighty. In Psalm 104, verse 29, you hide your face and they are troubled. You take away their breath, and they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, and they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. So just by the spoken word, both life is created and life is taken away from the Lord Almighty. That's this commonality we have with animals and with our entire planet, that everything all has to do with as he sees it and in his sovereignty and in his timing. But in verse 21, we see in Ecclesiastes 3, we don't, I put up there, we don't know what is beyond this life either. This is what Solomon's trying to say, is that we don't have any idea, only one, that being Jesus, has actually died for more than a short period of time and come back, and, and in his account we can read. But as far as humans, we don't have, we've got volumes of books and scores of books that people have written about what takes place in the afterlife, but no one really knows for sure. There's always that little doubt that's in our mind. But what we do know for sure, if we stay in Psalms verse and chapter uh, 90, is that our days are in fact numbered. If you turn a little bit to the left in Psalm 90 verse 10, we see the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. That's it. When it's over, it's over. And who knows the power of your anger, for as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So the idea being here is teach us uh, just the fact that our days are numbered, that time is short, and that we need to make every moment count. That's what he's trying to say in verse 22, even though he's maybe a little bit off kilter, but what he's saying is we should all enjoy the time we have. He's giving the eat, drink, and be merry mantra. But for us, it's different. From From the Christian standpoint, it's different because we do have to redeem the time. Our time is limited, so the question becomes, what are we going to do with it? And what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 is this. In the fourth chapter of the book of Colossians, uh, picking up in verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So walking in wisdom is how we should carry ourselves. To who? To those who are outside. Outside of where? Outside of our Christian population. Outside of our church. To the outside world. So that our speech may always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. So this is our interactions that we should have. I'm sure you've heard it before that the greatest testimony I ever heard is the one I saw, right? With our arms lifted up like this lady in the picture that changed lives are the things that will actually bring people to that understanding of Jesus. But they're not going to understand that unless they interact with you, unless they interact with me. So last year, about this time, we were, uh, every year Cameron's gym, my oldest daughter, her gym does a big gymnastics event at the Civic Center. So we have to set up the gymnastics equipment uh, with volunteer help. We have to tear down the gymnastics equipment with volunteer help. And at the end of the the entire uh, deal on Sunday evening, we're tearing down all the equipment, and I invited my dad to come with me. And uh, my dad is, he can be helpful if he wants this day, he decided he wanted to be helpful. So we're there uh, working together, and we're, we're loading things. When all of a sudden, a few of the dads, they start to go in the back of the truck, and they're popping open a few beers, right? They're just blowing off some steam, opening a few beers. And uh, my dad just completely disappears. He's gone. He's out. Seacrest out. But I worked with him, and we continue to load the truck and, and get it all together. And afterwards, boy, he was just fuming mad. And he said, can you believe that? Those guys out there drinking with the kids in an event like, oh, he was just so mad. And what I said to him, I said, if they don't see light in us, where else are they going to see it? Let's not be surprised when the world acts like the world. Now, this might have been my greatest preaching moment of all time, so don't think I always respond like this. But the reality is, is that. Like, if, if I don't stay there and work with those guys and treat them just like I would if they were drinking a bush light or not, uh, how are they going to ever see any kind of Jesus? I was the only light in that, the back of that trailer that day. So, so we shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like the world. I would have been more surprised had they not acted like that, honestly. I mean, they really don't know any better. So for us, the position we're in is in a position of redeeming the time, taking the opportunity that every moment we have is a moment to share Christ. Not every moment to to beat them down about their actions, but to just speak a little differently, act a little differently. Man, how come that guy didn't grab one of those and pop the top? So that's the spot that we're in. So then lastly, we see that politics are also meaningless. And uh, let's pick up where we left off in in chapter 4 this time as we move on into the fourth chapter and pick up in verse 1. 
And then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. All right, so we'll wrap that up with some light reading from Solomon. It's better to never have been born at all. There you go. But first of all, I want to point out, this is an odd statement to me. As I read it the first time, is that he is lamenting the oppression of people when he's the king of Israel. If anybody could do something about the oppression of people, shouldn't it be the king? He's not a president or even a congressman that has to go through the legal system and try to make changes. He's the king. He's in charge of everybody. So he should be able to lift the oppression of people. And yet, he's in this spot where he's saying, you know, the, the oppression, these poor people, they have no comforter. So let me impress upon you that the ultimate oppressor, which Solomon understood, is the ruler of this world, Satan. In John 12, 31, even Jesus refers to him as the ruler of this world. And if you recall, as Jesus is being tempted in the desert, and he's taken away for those 40 days, Satan takes him, he takes him up on top of a high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, if you'll just bow to me, all this can be yours. I'll give it all over to you. And notice, Jesus didn't argue with him. He didn't argue that Satan didn't have the right to do that. That upon us uh, sinning, the sin of Adam, that he actually gave over not only himself to death, but he also handed over the title deed to the earth. So as Adam and Eve are sin-free and they're perfect, God gives them, to under their subjection, the earth and everything that's in it. And they give all that up at the fall of man. And Satan takes over this title deed to the earth. Now this deed, fortunately for us, if you read in Revelation, is this scroll that has seven seals that Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah, is going to take back at the end of everything, and he's going to open those seals. But the issue we have right now, as Mike will say, quite often, is that we have a nurture, we don't have a nurture problem, we have a nature problem, right? When we gave up the title deed, it changed all of nature. So this oppression, the fact of the matter is, it's not going to end. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do something about it. If we, uh, if we turn to Mark chapter 14, that's where I wanted to take you scripturally before I get too far ahead of myself. In Mark chapter 14, we're going to read verse 7, but as we make our way there, this is the section of Mark that we studied a few months ago where Mary breaks the alabaster box and she dumps the perfume over Jesus' head, essentially anointing him for burial. And all the disciples are ticked off because basically she wasted like $30,000 in our day and age of, of perfume on Jesus. In their mind, a complete waste. But what he says in verse 7 is, "...for the poor you will have with you always." Whenever you wish, you may do good to them, but me you do not always have. So what Jesus is saying here is the poor you're always going to have. No matter how many government programs we set up or how many ways we set up to help the poor, it's always going to be here. Why? Because of the oppressor. This world has been tainted by sin. That doesn't mean we shouldn't help. That In fact, it says that the poor are here so you may do good to them as you wish, or as uh, I allow you to. But either way, both rich or poor, 
we all have the same issue. And that is without salvation, we're lost. Without salvation, we're all spiritually bankrupt. So if we continue on then in verse 3, the question is, is it better to have never existed? Is it just better that we never exist, or is it better to be passed on out of this life? Well, in, if we stayed right there in Mark 14 and flipped a little bit farther to the right, you'd see uh, he's describing what's going to take place for Judas. So Judas, as he's going to betray Jesus and give over the Son of Man to uh, the Roman authorities eventually to be crucified, in verse 21 he says, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now that seems really harsh. But the fact of the matter is that when we look at this from an eternal standpoint, it's just that serious. That when we look at this in light of eternity, for folks that are not going to choose to accept Jesus, it's just this bleak. That it would be better for them to have never existed rather than to exist for all of eternity separated from God in hell. So as we talk about this idea of, of redeeming time and how we're going to interact with people, think of it in, in that mindset, and it really changes things. That it's, it is as serious as life and death. And really the problem, as I put up there for you with, with politics, and the, and the reason that it's so meaningless is like the law, what politics can never do is it could never regulate the heart. So if the law given to Moses was given to him by God on Mount Sinai, if that can't regulate the hearts of men, then certainly the laws made by congressmen can't regulate the hearts of men. It's a heart issue. And uh, Pastor Mike actually wrote this in a paper uh, that he did for his seminary. But years ago, uh, all of our area of the Midwest had blue laws, which specifically said that businesses couldn't be open on Sundays. You couldn't buy gas on Sundays. You couldn't go to the grocery store on Sundays. You couldn't go out to eat on Sundays. And so people were essentially forced into honoring the Sabbath. And as the debate took place for these blue laws being done away with, or states having the option to do away with, boy, the Christians were upset. I mean, they were all up in arms. Like, this thing needs to stay in place. But wouldn't you know it, that years later, as the blue laws go away, we all go out to eat on Sunday, we all go to get gas on Sunday, we play sports on... All of a sudden, this incredibly meaningful day of the Sabbath just went away. You see, the, the bottom line is, for most of us, that the Sabbath was really uh, all about the law dictated. It really wasn't a heart change, right? And so that's, that's the point here, is that the law can never do in us what it needed to do that there's only one thing and one person, specifically Jesus Christ, that can bring all of this back into the right order that we're really clamoring for. That no amount of politics, no amount of policy that's passed in Washington could ever do the thing that he is going to eventually do for us. So if you turn with me to Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. This is actually in our Bible reading today. I was very excited. Shameless plug for Bible study together. If you don't have the app, you need to get that app on your phone. Peter Schrock is even working on this thing to be able to read the Bible to you. I give you a date that he's going to make that go live, but he'd probably throw something at me. No, he's not going to give you a date. But a wonderful app, Bible study together. But it, this was a part of our reading today in verse 6 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Whew, amen. I cannot wait for that. So if you're here and you're clamoring for that, you want justice, this is who you want to run things, right? Not men, but in fact, we want King Jesus. And then in the book of Revelation, as we look finally at how everything is going to wrap up in Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So in the meantime, where are we left? We're left in a spot to redeem the time. But the good news is we know how the story ends. And the good news is our, our God is long-suffering. Because quite frankly, for most of us, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, we're thankful he didn't come back that quickly. And here we are today by the grace of God. So let's redeem the time as we go out on this Wednesday. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Ecclesiastes that challenges us, that forces us to look at our world, that forces us to look at the places that we call for change and the places that we don't rely on for change. Lord, the, the, the difficult topics that are politics and justice and the things that we are so frustrated by, Lord, we pray for you soon to bring those into right order. But until that time, Lord, we, we specifically pray for the souls of those that need to come to know you. Lord, we pray for those people in our own lives that we think of that are popping in our heads right now. Lord, please uh, save them, Father. Please quicken their hearts. Please soften them, Lord. Um, we just call on you to do that good work. And we thank you for what you've done and what you've promised in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand?